Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. For the first time, the new Democratic majority on Capitol Hill is shaping comprehensive energy legislation. A Senate bill would boost conservation and renewables. Altogether, our bill will cut our oil consumption by more than 4 million barrels a day and reduce our dependence on foreign energy sources right away. And by the way, we might just save the planet while we're at it. Also, Eskimo whale hunters kill an ancient whale and find a harpoon fragment that was embedded for more than 100 years. It's a piece of brass about three and a half inches, four inches long. We examined the, uh, the piece and found that it was uh, a model made after a patent of 1879, which is only made from 1879 to 1885, we think. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Democratic leaders on Capitol Hill say they want the country to move forward with energy that is clean and green. A bill on the Senate side would increase funding and incentives for alternative fuels and renewable energy. It would also set new efficiency standards for lighting and appliances and require that cars and trucks get more miles per gallon. Democratic Senate leader Harry Reid. Altogether, our bill will save American consumers tens of billions of dollars annually, cut our oil consumption by more than 4 million barrels a day, and reduce our dependence on foreign energy sources right away. And by the way, We might just save the planet while we're at it. But some senators from both parties would also like to see the expanded use of coal and take a conservative approach for setting new fuel economy standards. Our Washington correspondent Jeff Young joins us now to take a look down the country's energy path. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Steve. Jeff, Senator Reid says this bill would cut U.S. oil consumption. How would it do that? Well, it would change both the country's fuels and its vehicles. This bill pumps up production of biofuels to 36 billion gallons within 15 years. That's five times the current level. And it says that all the cars and trucks that a company makes should average 35 miles a gallon by the year 2020. That's up from today's average, which is about 25. And does the Senate Majority Leader have the votes for that? Well, uh, the first of those goals is a political uh, slam dunk. Everybody here loves biofuels. Let's grow our energy in the Midwest instead of buying it from the Middle East, that sort of thing you hear a lot of. Uh, The second part, though, about changing the vehicles, that's a tough fight. Yeah, I mean, Detroit does seem to be very good at telling Washington to leave it alone. How will the automakers fare this time? Well, uh, Detroit is saying they can't meet that 35-mile-per-gallon standard. And Michigan's Democratic senators, Carl Levin and Debbie Stabenow, are working very hard to lower the bill's mileage standards. But there's a strong sense here on the Hill that automakers have to do something. You know, the average fuel economy for cars and trucks in 07 is lower than it was in 1987. And you can just hear the frustration from senators like uh, California Democrat Dianne Feinstein. The fact of the matter is that Detroit has done nothing about mileage efficiency for the past 20 years, and the time has come. Jeff, I know ethanol and biofuels are getting a lot of support, but what about this plan that you report on recently to use coal, liquid coal, to power our cars? 
Well, that is another big fight that's brewing here. A lot of uh, coal state senators, including a lot of Democrats, by the way, they say, hey, if we really want to be energy independent, well, we're the Saudi Arabia of coal. We could turn it into a liquid transportation fuel. And they want some help from Congress, maybe having uh, the military buy the fuel at first to sort of jumpstart a liquid coal industry and voila, solve our oil problem. Yeah, but what about the environmental climate change problem and those costs of coal? Oh, yeah, that. Well, there is a stiff opposition to this liquid coal proposal. One, it turns out it's very expensive to turn coal into a liquid fuel. And two, unless you add even more expensive equipment to that, the process would put out about twice the greenhouse gases that gasoline does. So environmental groups are fighting this. And, uh, for example, uh, Senator Barack Obama of Illinois, he uh, originally supported liquid coal, took a lot of heat from environmental groups and had to back away from it recently. Uh, It does, however, appear that a compromise of some sort is in the works for this bill that would uh, support liquid coal, but require that those projects capture the carbon dioxide they produce. Of course, that's the major greenhouse gas. And Jeff, what about all the greenhouse gases coming from all that coal we burn for electricity? Does the bill address that? Well, this is not per se a global warming bill. The Democratic leaders say they're still working on that one. Uh, But this bill does have some of what you would call the building blocks of a global warming bill. And probably the biggest is what's called a renewable portfolio standard. Yeah. Now, renewables, you're talking about things like wind, solar and biomass. What would this standard call for? It says power companies have to produce 15 percent of their electricity from those clean sources you listed there. And if they can't, they have to buy credits from some other power company that does. New Mexico Democrat Jeff Bingaman chairs the Energy Committee, and he's the one pushing this idea. I think there are there are lots of different ways that people can produce energy other than using fossil fuels. And we're trying to stimulate the technologies to use all of those. Now, some southern states that burn a lot of coal for their power and don't have a lot of potential for wind power are fighting this. In fact, Republicans have raised the possibility of a filibuster over this issue. But the idea has a lot of support uh, in most of the country. Twenty-two states already have some sort of renewable standard, including, by the way, Texas, which has a lot of wind power and where the bill was signed by a fellow named uh, George Bush. So Governor Bush signed such a measure. How about President Bush? The president does not support this, and he says he will veto this bill if it includes another provision under consideration that makes price gouging by oil companies a crime. And before we even get to that stage of things, of course, we have yet to hear from the House of Representatives. They'll probably take up energy next month. Uh, But I've got to say, there is a remarkable amount of support for clean energy and efficiency that you just didn't see on Capitol Hill until very recently. And I think it's because there is so much public anxiety about energy these days. We import too much oil. We're warming the planet. We're paying too much for gas. It's sort of a trifecta of worry. And Congress is really feeling the pressure to act. Jeff Young is Living on Earth's Washington correspondent. Thanks so much, Jeff. You're welcome. A 
Among all the energy bills on Capitol Hill is a House measure that will provide tax breaks to homeowners who put small wind turbines in their backyards. And it will follow the lead of some states which already subsidize home wind power. One of these is California, where homeowner Denise Cooley has put up small wind turbines at each of two houses she owns in San Bernardino, east of Los Angeles. And she's on the line. Uh, Ms. Cooley, tell me, how's the wind blowing out there today? Today? Yeah. Actually, not that good. <laughs> there's hardly any current at all, but that's okay, because there's other days when it makes up for it. So um, tell me what you can see out your window. I'm wondering if you can see the turbine. Oh, yeah. It's only about 50 feet from the house. Uh, my house right now, I live on a, a ledge. And having a windmill up on the top portion uh, is the best location to where I can get the, the best current. The higher up it is, the better consumption that you get. So um, this is about a 10-kilowatt generator, I gather. And how much power do you get over the course of a year? It typically ranges about twelve to 13,000 kilowatts. So how much of your energy needs do you meet uh, uh, with your wind turbine? Actually, it's 100%. Uh, it balances out. Some months are slow and some are excessive. And so at the end of the year, you look at it and... And um, like last year, I only had a $15 bill, and that was for being connected to the Edison grid. And before you had a wind turbine, how much was your annual bill for electricity? I don't know. Annually, I know um, monthly, I would pay about three to $400 a month in electric alone. And what do you use in your house? The house right now is around 4,000 square foot. 4,000 square feet? That's a big house. It's a big house, and that's what's so nice about it is that I'm able to generate enough wind current and enough kilowatts that the house will consume the same amount, and it, it is levels out. It's a wash. So you have two wind turbines. Well, um, I have the one on my first house that is for sale, and then I have one on my current house. And as I was designing this house, I made sure that I, I switched the water heaters over to electric and I put in as many ceiling fans as I could, and then on the uh, stovetop and different things that might have been propane, I could switch to electric. And so far, the system you put in in your new house is covering everything that you need? It covers everything. I still pay about $1.73 a month to be connected to the Edison grid and to be able to enjoy this, this wonderful opportunity. So a lot of people think about getting windmills. What motivated you to make the decision to actually do this? Well, you look in your yard and you might have a toy or a car or a boat, and that might be about 25000 And so in the windmill, after the rebates, is about the same price. So we just projected out you know, how long it would take to get that money back, and then after that period, you're getting even more back. So why not invest into your own home? They say your principal residence is your best investment you'll ever make. So knowing that, and wanting to keep the cost down and be conservative, you just know that it's it's a right decision. How much did the system cost, and how much did the state cover? Um, originally, the system was about forty four, forty five thousand. In the last couple of years, the prices of material and everything has gone up. So, my first one, I paid about forty five, fifty percent of that, so it came to about twenty four thousand. My second one, I paid about twenty six, twenty seven thousand. Now, right now on Capitol Hill, uh, the federal government is looking at a bill that uh, would give tax credits uh, to folks who put up residential wind energy uh, projects. Um, how much of a good or bad idea do you think this is? Oh, no. It's excellent. 
if it wasn't for the rebates and it, it helping out with the majority of the cost, then people wouldn't be able to do it because they're not going to be in that house for 20, 30 years to where they're going to want to invest in that. Now, when you put up a wind turbine in a neighborhood, the neighbors might have objected. Did any of them object? And, and, and what did you say to them? A couple would stop, and they would pretend like they wanted to get educated and ask me questions about it, and then they would stop and say, oh, we just wanted to see how loud and noisy and annoying it was. And so for them, they just already had the mindset that they didn't like it, and that was okay. But then I had other neighbors asking intelligent questions and wanting to see the inverter and watch my meter run backwards because they thought that that was impossible. You hear about it all the time, but you, if you can see something for your own eyes, it makes more sense. Denise Cooley, thank you so much for taking this time with me today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Later in the program, the energy crunch stimulates drilling in the wilds of Colorado. That's coming up on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We have two developments to tell you about this week on the topic of testing chemicals for toxic effects. In the first, the National Academy of Sciences is recommending that federal agencies like the EPA adopt sweeping changes to the ways that they test for health effects of chemicals. The goal for these tests is to be faster and cheaper, provide far more information, and be done with little or no use of laboratory animals. In the second related development, the EPA has just announced that it will finally begin testing 73 common pesticides for effects on the human hormonal or endocrine system. This assessment of so-called hormone disruptors has been years in the waiting and finally came about in part because of a lawsuit filed by the Natural Resources Defense Council. Dr. Gina Solomon is a senior scientist with the NRDC, and she joins us now on a line from San Francisco. Uh, Dr. Solomon, uh, can you tell us briefly what are the hormone disruptors and uh, why should we be concerned about them? Hormone disruptors are chemicals that don't belong in our bodies that interfere with the normal action of our hormones. And these, uh, these natural hormones guide uh, infant development. They also guide many of our day-to-day uh, -day life functions. And so messing with them is not a good idea. The Environmental Protection Agency has announced that they're going to start testing some 73 pesticides that people are most likely exposed to. How much of a victory is this for the public health community? One important point here is that EPA was required to start testing chemicals to see if they're endocrine disruptors eight or nine years ago. NRDC and other groups brought a lawsuit against EPA when it missed the first deadline required by Congress. Uh, EPA then, uh, in, as part of the settlement of that lawsuit, agreed to start uh, the testing process. They agreed to do that by 2002, 
They haven't started yet, and they've only now announced a draft short list of chemicals that they're thinking about testing. So we're a long ways from being able to say that this is a, a step forward. Dr. Solomon, I, I want to turn now to an, another development in the news, and you're intimately involved with this. You're on uh, a panel at the National Academy of Sciences that's looking at the whole question of testing for toxicity. Can you explain uh, why it is that, that we need to look at this? What, what's wrong with the way we test toxic chemicals today? The horrible delays with the EPA endocrine disruptor program is emblematic of where we stand with toxicity testing in general today. EPA is still struggling to get out of the last century. They're very slow at getting new programs off the ground. Most of the chemical tests that are required um, are looking for crude endpoints, such as death in a laboratory rat, obvious tumors, birth defects, um, or severe toxicity of internal organs. Uh, there are a lot more subtle ways and earlier markers of toxicity that we could be focusing on, but uh, we're not there quite yet. And the NAS panel is proposing moving in a much more upstream direction where we'll find hints of toxicity far before it really occurs. Why would that be of, of help? The problems with toxicity testing today are that it costs a lot of money, um, takes a lot of effort to um, do even a small number of chemicals and does not provide information about low dose effects, effects of chemical mixtures. The new approach that the NAS is proposing would help deal with some of these problems by looking at pathways towards toxicity that can be tested just in cell systems in the laboratory. So in other words, instead of looking for the flat tire, you're looking for maybe a, a beginning of the erosion of the rubber? We would be looking for weak spots in the rubber and uh, you know, spots where there might be a tiny hiss of air coming out, but we're not waiting for the flat tire anymore. Now, as I understand it, these proposed methods of doing testing would perhaps take away the need to use animals. How would that happen? The NAS committee envisioned that someday, and it's going to be many years in the future, there will be very little use of animals in toxicity testing. Um, that's because once we're focusing on pathways, we can actually get down to the cell level. And when we see that in cells, a chemical is disrupting a pathway that can lead to, say, cancer or birth defects or neurological harm, we don't need to know more. Once we know that that pathway is interfered with, then that chemical would need to be controlled to the point that it's no longer interfering with that pathway. Well, it sounds like a revolution for the field of, of toxicology, but, but if we've been testing chemicals more or less the same uh, way since chemicals were introduced, I imagine it's going to be, well, it's going to be kind of tough to change the whole culture and system of doing this. Uh, what are your expectations for the future of chemical testing? There's already a revolution underway in chemical testing. There are organizations like the National Toxicology Program that are pioneering approaches that are just like the ones that I'm describing. The next step of that revolution is to bring it into an arena where it can be useful for protecting public health and the environment. I take it you're really excited about this prospect. I think that this proposal has a lot of, of merit in getting us out of some of the traps that we're in right now, especially the toxic ignorance trap, 
where we know so little about so many chemicals. I also think that this promise is many, many years away, probably decades away. There's a long road from here to there, and I'm hoping that we can actually embark on that road and make these changes. Dr. Gina Solomon is a senior scientist with the Natural Resources Defense Council and on the National Academy of Sciences Committee on Toxicity Testing and Assessment of Environmental Agents. Thank you so much. Thank you. We asked the EPA about the lengthy delay in testing hormone-disrupting chemicals. Jim Gullifert, Assistant Administrator for the Office of Pesticides and Toxic Substances, did not reply directly. Instead, he sent a written statement saying that the EPA is, quote, a leader in endocrine disruptor research, and that the screening effort will, quote, provide the agency with a more comprehensive assessment of a chemical's ability to affect the endocrine system. Every day, millions of people in America, most of them women, expose themselves to dangerous chemicals in the home. That's because many common household cleaning agents, such as bleach, furniture polish, and toilet bowl and oven cleaners, contain highly toxic substances. And for those who make their living cleaning houses, the rate of toxic exposure could be even higher. But there are safer cleaning chemicals. And now some immigrant house cleaners in the Boston area have joined forces to try to cut their exposure by greening the way they clean. Catherine Elton has our story. In the basement office of the community organization, the Brazilian Women's Group, several Brazilian house cleaners sit around tables and discuss the agenda for an upcoming meeting. The women are part of Vida Verde, a new green cleaning cooperative that began last December. Monica Cinelli, a house cleaner and the co-op's coordinator, helped launch Vida Verde. She says house cleaning is the number one occupation for the women of Massachusetts' large Brazilian immigrant community. It's because it's the flexibility of uh, the hours and the money. The payment is so it's good. But along with those benefits, co-op member Carlo de Castro says, came some problems. I felt hairy all day long and dizzy. At the end of the day, you can smell anything because you just lost your sensitive for smell. I can feel better when I'm stopped to use, but I know if I'm continuing to use that for months and years, I know that's making me feel very sick. Castro wasn't the only one feeling this way. Monica Cinelli worked with immigrant activists interviewing hundreds of Brazilian house cleaners. She heard many complaints like these and about respiratory problems, nosebleeds, fainting, and skin rashes. Some of the women said they felt so bad they considered quitting the business. So Cinelli and the activists started promoting green cleaning products. Their work caught the attention of epidemiologist David Goode of Tufts University. When he received a grant from the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health to study immigrant occupational health issues, a chunk of it went to jumpstart the Vida Verde Cooperative. What we hope to get is a group of uh, co-op members 
who will take seriously the responsibilities of uh, protecting their own health and also protecting, uh, obviously, the environmental health of of the clients' homes in, in which they work. I think that there will be a greater sense of control of their own of their own lives and businesses um, as a result of this. Research shows there's a higher incidence of asthma among professional cleaners as compared to other workers. And other studies examine indoor air pollutants that could affect human health. A four-year study recently completed at the University of California, Berkeley, looked at whether routine use of common cleaning products and air fresheners affect indoor air quality. Researchers studied solvents called glycol ethers, a toxic air contaminant and common ingredient in cleaning products. They also looked at other solvents called terpenes. They're the seemingly innocuous ingredients which give products lemon or pine scent. But terpenes can create dangerous formaldehyde when they mix with ozone found in indoor air. William Nazaroff was the lead scientist on the Berkeley study. What we found was that the levels of exposure both to glycol ethers and to secondary pollutants from terpene use could be high enough to warrant further attention and some concern, especially under scenarios where high amounts of the products are being used in spaces that are small and not very well ventilated. But Nazaroff is quick to point out that there is still a lot that hasn't been proven about the relationship between these toxic air contaminants and the health problems of house cleaners. At this point, we're not able to connect the dots to say that the chemical exposures are, in fact, the reason that occupational asthma is elevated in this group. But more work is going to have to be done to try to fill in the gaps between those two endpoints. And without that epidemiological data to prove a connection... Tufts' David Goot says not much can be done to force a change in the formulations of the products. There has always been this uneasy tension uh, in the regulatory community about when is a chemical safe for use. The prevailing wisdom has, has usually been a chemical is safe until proven guilty. The vast majority of, of chemicals, either newly developed or new combinations of, of chemicals, are not screened in any meaningful way prior to release. Vida Verde co-op members aren't the only ones unwilling to wait for science and government regulations to catch up with their concerns. The demand for natural home cleaning products has taken off recently, and several states now require janitors clean schools and other public buildings with products that meet the standards of the nonprofit certifying company Green Seal. Currently, there is no certification standard for home cleaning products. But Green Seal expects to start certifying these products, too, in the coming months. Members of the Vida Verde Co-op, however, opted for another approach. On a recent morning, Monica Cinelli and another co-op member make their own natural cleaning products. Members take turns and mix enough for others to use when they clean. We made the amazing. Now we're going to... Magic. Six cups of water and six cups of vinegar. Okay? They use recycled plastic bottles to store the products and put on Vida Verde labels to identify them. And then they're ready to use them in their clients' homes. In a large Victorian house outside of Boston, Monica Cinelli starts to clean in the kitchen. First, I use uh, Fantasc. That is a, a product that we made with uh, soap, borax. After that, to 
to rinse, I use uh, amazing. That is something with water and vinegar because vinegar dissolves the the soapy films. Homeowner Katrine Koifer says she is happy with the results. I mean, I have young children. I'm glad that they're not exposed to any um, chemicals in the house. It's good for our family and it's good for the environment as a whole. So I don't have any reason not to do it. Members of Vida Verde say that since they switched products, their health problems have disappeared. And co-op members are hoping to convince more house cleaners to change the way they clean. They're making presentations to house cleaners around Massachusetts to show them how to make their own natural products and why. For Living on Earth, I'm Katherine Elton in Boston. Advertisements, it seems, are almost everywhere, from the sides of buses to video screens in washrooms. They're almost impossible to get away from. And now marketer Bob Cantor is bringing them to just about the last ad-free frontier, your bedroom closet. But Mr. Cantor says it's all in the interest of the earth. Old-fashioned wire clothes hangers consume almost 200 million pounds of steel a year in the U.S. alone. And a good deal of that eventually ends up in landfills. So Mr. Cantor says he's got the answer, the eco-hanger. It's a hanger with an environmental and, oh yes, a commercial message. Eco-hangers are made out of recycled paper and are fully recyclable. They are a heavy-duty paperboard. It's 34-ply paper, which is then folded twice and laminated like the back of a magazine. So they're a beautiful platform for distributing advertising and promotional messages that reach consumers in the mornings while they're getting dressed. How exactly does your business model work? Uh, The eco-hangers are distributed through a proprietary network of 35,000 dry cleaners throughout the United States. That's over 95% of the dry cleaners in America. And we provide them to the dry cleaners for free. So it's a win-win situation for the consumers, for the dry cleaners, and for the marketers who want to reach consumers with their advertising. So I get this hanger and it has an ad on it. I wake up in the morning and and I'm told that I should buy what? You wake up in the morning and instead of seeing the nasty, mangled, wire hangers that typically sit in your closet, you see a beautiful message in four color that's targeted directly to you from a marketer who want to reach adult men and or women in the morning during their dressing and grooming ritual. All right. So let's say I'm in Chicago and I want to advertise in that market. How how much is it going to cost me for for every hanger that's got the uh, Steve Kerwood shirt company on it? What do I have to pay? It depends on how many people are, are in the individual buys, but on a cost Per impression, which is the way advertisers tend to compare media, uh, it's anywhere between four and five cents, and so it's a very efficient media buy. How much steel do you think your your business is eliminating now from the U.S. market per year today? It's hard to put an estimate on it because our business has been growing at a pretty rapid pace. But uh, you know, we are on on pace to virtually eliminate all wire hangers in the United States that are used on shirts delivered through dry cleaners. There's only one thing, Bob, about this. What if the muffler's fallen off of my car? How am I going to use your hanger to, to wire it up? <laughs> Virtually the only reason that anyone would ever want to have a wire hanger again is to either keep your muffler on or break into your car. Bob Cantor is the CEO of Hanger Network. It's a company that makes clothes hangers out of recycled material. Thank you so much, sir. My pleasure. Of course, there is another way to reduce steel waste and still keep your closet ad-free. Just take your old hangers back with you to the cleaners and ask them to use them again. 
catch our show anytime or download a podcast at our website, LOE.org. That's LOE.org. And we'd love to hear your comments. The address is comments at LOE.org. That is comments at LOE.org. The number for our listener line is 800-218-9988. And the mail carrier will bring us your old-fashioned letters at 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144, USA. Coming up, the largest movement in the world that you've never heard about. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In the Rocky Mountains, hunting and conservation groups have been fighting hard to protect what they consider sensitive terrain from the natural gas drilling boom with all its roads, pipelines, and wellheads. And it looks like they have lost a battle. The federal agency that oversees Colorado's Rhone Plateau says, yes, the drill rigs may now enter. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports. North of Interstate 70 in western Colorado, steep cliffs rise and then flatten onto the Rhone Plateau and its forests, native trout streams, and colored canyons. Mark Smith of the Independent Petroleum Association of Mountain States knows the area by a different name, the Naval Oil Shale Reserves 1 and 3. These are historic petroleum reserves that were transferred by Congress in 1997 to the Bureau of Land Management for the express purpose of oil and gas leasing. Energy companies that lay the pipe, set drill rigs, and build roads have pressed to get into this area because the reserves underneath are so rich. The Naval Oil Shale Reserves 1 and 3 hold enough natural gas to heat 4 million homes for 20 years, some 9 trillion cubic feet of fuel. Now, after years of controversy, the Bureau of Land Management has decided to open up about half the public land on top of the plateau to gas drilling. I just can't express the, the values that are, that are up there and the, the values that are at stake with this. Claire Bastable has spent weeks camping on the plateau. She's with the Colorado Mountain Club, one of many hunting, fishing, conservation, and recreation groups banded together in the campaign for the Rhone Plateau. It's one of the central locations for mule deer and other big game populations, and so it's really a haven for wildlife. Just got such an incredible diversity in its landscape from kind of rolling hills to um, spruce and fir and aspen forests to deep canyons that have been likened to Yosemite. Below the plateau, there are thousands of new gas wells on both public and private land. In Garfield County alone, where much of the plateau sits, 1,700 new wells were approved last year. Not every landscape, every last landscape needs to be drilled. And the Rhone falls under one of these landscapes that we feel needs to be protected. Some maintain that even under the new plan, it will be. BLM has included what all agree are some new safeguards. Energy companies will only be allowed to tear up 350 acres of pipeline path or drilling area at a time. Then they'll have to replant that scraped earth with native plants before moving on to the next ridgetop. Rural Garfield County stands to gain some $57 million a year under the BLM's lease plan. Nevertheless, public sentiment in this part of the country has been shifting toward more environmental protection as gas wells proliferate. 
the new governor of Colorado, Bill Ritter, was not happy when the BLM issued the plan and refused to give him more time to weigh in on something that had been approved by the prior Republican governor, spokesman Evan Dreyer. Those two actions deny what is a new administration ample time to review a very significant public policy matter that concerns the entire state of Colorado. Now Governor Ritter is backing a more adversarial effort by two Colorado congressmen and a senator to slow down the project by blocking money for it in Congress. Again, Evan Dreyer. Well, the BLM says that its decisions are based on directives from Congress. So we're seeking through legislation, congressional legislation, what we had asked for administratively, additional time. If that effort fails and no judge issues a stay, bidding would soon begin for the right to drill in this sought-after corner of the Rockies. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet. Sometime in the late 1800s, probably around 1890 or so, a male bowhead whale swimming in the Arctic waters off Alaska encountered a band of Eskimo hunters. One of the hunters fired a harpoon, hitting the whale in the neck. But the bowhead didn't die and continued to swim the waters of the Arctic for about another 115 years. We know this because in May, another band of Eskimo hunters killed the whale, And when the hunters carved up its 49-foot carcass, they found a piece of metal embedded in its neck. It's a piece of brass about three and a half inches, four inches long. The tip of an explosive harpoon. And for the moment, it sits on the desk of John Boxtoes, an historian at the New Bedford Whaling Museum in Massachusetts. It turns out that the weapon was made in New Bedford, which at one time was the whaling capital of the world. We examined the, uh, the piece and found that it was uh, a model made after a patent of 1879, which is only made from 1879 to 1885, we think. It would have had to be shipped to San Francisco, where the whaling fleet was based in those days, and carried to northern Alaska. So 1890 seems to be a reasonable estimate of when it was used, either earlier or later, by a few years perhaps. So this find provides direct evidence for how long whales can live. Scientists usually use a rather obscure method to calculate the age of whales. They analyze amino acids in whales' eyes. And they've concluded that some whales can live as long as 200 years. But the explosive spear tip found in this whale provides much clearer evidence of its age. The uh, weapon exploded, but it didn't do much damage to the whale because he lived for another 100 years, of course. And consider this. It is possible the hunters who killed the ancient bowhead in May could be descended from the very same hunters who first attacked it more than a century ago. John Boxtow says he found tiny scratches on the spearhead. And that, we think, is a, uh, an ownership mark that a native whaleman would have used because the Eskimos, who have hunted whales for at least 2,000 years up there for the subsistence hunt, they mark their hunting equipment with their own particular brand. And this has six little notches, and we don't know who that person was, but it definitely is unlike something that would have been done by, say, a commercial whaleman at the same time. A century ago, the whales were being hunted to the edge of extinction. 
Today, bowheads have rebounded, and though commercial whale hunting is generally illegal, Eskimos are still allowed under an international treaty to kill roughly 50 whales a year. In his 40 years as a businessman, writer, and environmental innovator, Paul Hawken has worked and spoken with hundreds of small nonprofit organizations. These are groups that work on everything from sustainable business practices to urban planning to rainforest protection to prison reform. They span a remarkable and growing spectrum of causes and concerns. And after a while, it became apparent to Paul Hawken that these groups were actually all part of one global decentralized movement. He says it's arising in response to the downsides of industrialization and globalization. After 10 years of research on these groups and the growing links among them, Paul Hawken has written a book entitled Blessed Unrest, How the Largest Movement in the World Came into Being and Why No One Saw It Coming. He says it's drawing together groups focused on such broad but often separate themes as the environment, social justice, and the rights of indigenous peoples. They are seen as separate in many ways. Their activities are very specific. But in fact, they are realizing, as I think many of us are, that in order to be effective in the areas which they concentrate on, they have to work as a system. They have to collaborate, and they have to communicate with each other. So how is this different from, say, previous social movements uh, like abolition or suffrage or, or the environmental movement? Most movements, first of all, are created because there's an imbalance of power. And it tries to aggregate that power to itself. And this movement is trying to disperse the pathological concentrations of power because it sees that as one of the main causes of the things it's addressing. Second of all, uh, movements usually arise because there is a charismatic leader. And that leader then gathers people around him or her, and then a movement grows and morphs outwards. But this movement is truly a bottom-up movement. And the third reason... uh, it's different, is because it doesn't really know it's a movement. That is to say, it didn't organize itself originally to be a concentration of power. It has no centrality. And what you're seeing now, due to modern-day technologies, the Internet, texting, cell phones, is that this huge, at one time, inchoate movement is starting to hook up and to collaborate and become more powerful. Poverty has a huge impact on the health of the environment, Uh, and yet many of the best-funded environmental groups tend to think first of habitat preservation uh, and maybe second of reducing poverty. You argue that this separation between human rights and the environmental movement is really a false split. Can you explain that, please? I will in, uh, in several ways. First of all, we include indigenous movements, and I think they're critical in two ways. One, because they are the custodians and stewards of the last great 
uh, remaining stands of timber and minerals and water and the earth, they are, are being now sort of confronted by corporate interests all over the world. And so their guardianship is critical to the survival of this planet. Second, because indigenous groups never disaggregated the concept of social justice and the environment. It's a concept that doesn't even occur to them, that the injustice to one is injustice to the other. I think the way I see it is that we in the West definitely have seen them as separate. But from my point of view, the fact is that that we have a political economic system that's stealing from the future and then selling it in the present as GDP or as a profit. And whether you steal that in the form of a clear-cut forest in British Columbia or whether you steal it in the form of exploitation of child workers or whether it's a toxic factory in China, you're doing exactly the same thing. That is to say, you're foreclosing the future for people by destroying either a place or people themselves. Now, you're a businessman. I um, believe you started in Boston with an organic uh, grocery store and Smith & Hawkins, a well-known garden tool company. And it sounds like you think business is the problem here. Business has always been the problem. It's been a problem since the conquest, uh, and it's gotten worse and worse and worse. And at the same time, there are many, many businesses who are organizing themselves to address these problems. This is not solvable without business and government. I do not mean to imply by focusing on civil society that somehow it's going to save the day. Really, what I'm saying here, this is not a movement that's trying to aggregate power. This is a movement that's trying to suffuse the institutions of the world with new ways of thinking, new ways of doing things, new ways of being. So therefore, its effectiveness, and in the end, looking back, its power, if you will, will be measured by how much it changes other institutions. And business is certainly one of those important institutions. At one point in your book, Paul, you argue that globalization of commerce and trade is pushing communities around the world into a, a homogenous culture of consumption. There's a Nike sneaker on every foot. There's a can of Coca-Cola in every hand. How is this movement you describe responding to this spread of commodity culture? I think one of the great responses to it, you're seeing it in terms of localization of economies, you're seeing it in the slow food movement, which is very much about farming and culture, and you're seeing as a expression and a need for people to create resilience uh, in their own communities, uh, you know, this post-carbon movement, this idea that a locale should be more interdependent with respect to fuel, energy, food, transportation. And in the process, it is rediscovering its own cultural, biological, culinary roots. And you're starting to see people reassemble things that they have lost. And this is true all over the world. And globalization has created this sense of, of loss that went so far and has gone so far that I think you're starting to see it uh, come back. And it's being driven very, very much by the threats that peak oil uh, pose. But there's not just peak oil. There's peak soil. There's peak water. There's a lot of peaks coming, and they're all related. And so people are starting to, you know, sniff the wind, feel it, and starting to create, again, alternatives to this in their communities. Paul Hawken, you're not afraid of big ideas, and you advance one in this book based on the Gaia hypothesis, that is, that the Earth is really one living organism. And you say, 
Just like living organisms uh, have an immune system, this social reaction to what's happening uh, with the environmental and social degradation of the, of the planet is being responded to by us as a body would respond uh, to an infection. Well, many scientists and philosophers have speculated for centuries that humanity itself acts like an organism. No one's been able to prove this or disprove it. It's simply observationally something that has seemed to be evident and true. And I am building on that and saying that what I believe is the only reasonable explanation to describe and justify what you see arising since it doesn't have a source is some other agent. And so I turn to biological metaphors and I turn to the immune system because the immune system is the most complex system in the body by far. And our idea of the immune system is it's like the Department of Defense and it you know, kills invaders and it certainly can do that. But long before it does that, it's like a big chamber of commerce mixer with everybody meeting each other, including pathogens. And it tries detente and rapprochement before it tries death. So if we understand that there is within us individually this ability, why not as a community? We are a community of cells. There's no such thing as a single cell in the sense of how it acts. It acts in community. We act in community. And because of communication, because of globalization, because of technology, there's no reason that we can't imagine that we, in some collective way, are now acting as community and evincing characteristics and responses that make total sense from a biological point of view, which is that we want to persist. We want to create a durable living economies. We want to restore some semblance of grace and justice and beauty to our lives and those that follow us. And I feel that this movement is that expression, this movement that may never have a name, but is growing more powerfully and more quickly than anything else on earth. Paul Hawkins' latest book is called Blessed Unrest, How the Largest Movement in the World Came into Being and Why No One Saw It Coming. Thank you, Paul. Thank you, Steve. And you can hear more of our interview with Paul Hawken on our website, LOE.org. Next time on Living on Earth, frogs are disappearing from ecosystems around the world. But in Utah, a river restoration project is helping frogs bounce back. You know, I think if this project hadn't come online, if it would have been going the way it was before, another generation, they wouldn't even know that they ever even existed. I mean, a world without frogs, it's, <laughs> it's a sad world. And, and if, if you don't know it, then you don't even know what you're missing. The return of the Columbia spotted frog next time on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobet, Andrea Smarden, Peter Thompson, and Jeff Young, with help from Jeff Turton, Bobby Bascom, and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Lauren Cox and Amy Fish. Dennis Foley is our technical director. Today we bid a fond farewell to our development associate, Jennifer Percy. Thanks, Jen. Allison Lirish-Dean composed our theme. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. From all of us here at Living on Earth, thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, 
the Ford Foundation, the Wellborn Ecology Fund, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Pax World, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.